It's Muppeturgy with a spoken episode about the George Burns episode of The Muppet Show with our own very special guest star, Anthony Strand. Yay! Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm David Levy. I'm so glad you're here with us. Here with me today are... Christy Bauer. Michal Richardson. Adam Grossworth. And Anthony, I can't wait to see how we offend you or your wife today. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not true. It's never true. Amuse, maybe. Like... I'm amused by our differences of opinion. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not offended. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll revisit that question at the end. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> yes, yeah, all right. Sounds like it. <laughs> For those of you who didn't listen to season one or have short memories, Anthony Strand grew up in North Dakota, where he sometimes got to watch the Muppet Show reruns at his grandmother's house. He's now a school librarian in Minnesota and the co-host of Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast from toughpigs.com. Anthony has the honor of being our first returning guest to the podcast, having previously joined us to discuss the Avery Schreiber episode. Anthony, since we have already asked you about your history with the Muppets, why don't you tell us about your future with the Muppets? Ooh. My future with the Muppets? I'm going to keep co-hosting Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast, I guess, on toughpigs.com. We are right now in the middle of our most absurd season yet. We decided to watch... Muppet Family Christmas, two minutes at a time. We are releasing those daily throughout December. So if you head over to toughpigs.com, you can hear my co-host Ryan Rowe and I and some guests talk about a TV special from 1987 that isn't commercially available every single day for 24 days in a row. Oh, man. I cannot wait for this. I just want to add that Anthony, in addition to hosting this podcast for Tough Pigs, also writes for Tough Pigs. That is true. As we're recording, he just released a really terrific Oral history of the character Mo Frackle. Now, this will be a little bit past history by the time you hear this episode, but we'll include a link in the show notes because it's just, it's a really fun article. It's terrifically researched, has a lot of different contributors to it. And Anthony did a great job bringing to life the story of this little known but much beloved character. Thank you so much. Well, and I feel like that article is very much in the spirit of what you do on this show, right? Where you spent so much time celebrating Droop and Mildred and George the janitor. And I feel like Mo is kind of a latter-day Cleveland Muppet in a way. Absolutely. He was kind of thrown into the mix for this family feud appearance 20 years ago, which is a strange origin for a character to have. So I just decided, you know what? His his puppet builder, James Voidel, and his performer, Bruce Lenoil, were both willing to talk to me. So why not get the story of this random monster who's in the background sometimes? Anything with a ridiculous game show connection works for us. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. Anyway, thanks for having me back. I'm thrilled. Yay! So this week we are talking about Season 2, Episode 10 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of August 2nd, 1977, and it aired in New York on September 19th, 1977. That's a quick turnaround. And it was the season premiere uh, of Season 2 in the air order, so I I guess that's why that happened. Nothing super exciting on the TV guide this week, but I did flip through the rest of today's New York Times. And on the front page, it is the eve of the New York City mayoral primary, which resonated because we just went through one of those here. I don't want to make this too New York focused, but that's that's my primary source. And uh, three <laughs> of the f- four of us are New Yorkers. The uh, Democratic primary race was focused on Ed Koch, who, spoiler alert, wound up being mayor through 1989, and Mario Cuomo, who would later wind up being governor and father of our recently disgraced, recently former governor, and they both have bridges named after them. Also in the race was Bella Abzug, who sadly does not have a bridge named after her. She does have a 
poster I've named after her. She's the focus of a poster <laughs> that hangs over my desk. So she that's would also amazing. help the three of them be the one who would make the best Muppet. Although Ed Koch is the one who appeared in a Muppet movie. True. I feel like there's got to be a Sesame Street Bella Abzug riff. I can't think of a good animal pun, but it, that feels like a th- thing that must have happened with a giant hat at some point. Wait, it's not impossible that she was on Sesame Street. Right? Um, for our West Coast friends uh, later in the paper, cost of the Olympic Games is worrying Los Angeles as officials put site bid before selection committee. You think? <laughs> And uh, I always look at the theater page, and frankly, it has not been super exciting at this moment in the 70s. But I learned that Leonard Nimoy was in Equus at some point in its run, which briefly blew my mind. And then I realized he must have been playing the professor or the doctor and not the the kid who appears naked and does terrible things to horses. And then I was like, oh, right, there's another major role in that play and was less exciting. (laughs) In the documentary For the Love of Spock, made by Adam Nimoy, there's photographs from that production to introduce our guest star that's what i'm here to do so it really makes me happy to introduce to you george burns depending on your age when you hear the name george burns you either picture the cigar chomping straight man to the hilarious ditzy blonde gracie allen in the 30s through the 50s or the cigar chomping dirty old man from the 70s through the 90s or perhaps you have no idea who i'm talking about born nathan birnbaum in 1896 in new york city George got his start in show business at age seven as a street corner singer with some of the other boys in his neighborhood in a group they named the Pee Wee Quartet. He started smoking his cigars at age 14, and they'd remain a part of his signature style for nearly a century. He gained the other element of his signature look, his thick Coke bottle glasses, before too long as well. And in fact, he failed his physical for the World War I draft due to his nearsightedness. This is around the time that he adopted the name George Burns, and also when he began performing in vaudeville. He had limited success with a number of different scene partners until 1923 when he met Gracie Allen. They formed a perfect comedy partnership, and the love they had for each other was evident in every exchange, which helped make their ditzy wife exasperated husband routine stand out. Even when he was exhausted by her loopy logic, he was enamored with her, and it made the audience love them both. Soon, they were doing their act in the movies and on radio, and although their radio act started with them playing boyfriend and girlfriend with some famous interlopers vying for Gracie's hand, despite the couple already being married in real life, in 1941, their characters caught up with them and got married as well. Their show lasted 17 years on the radio. In 1950, Burns and Allen moved to television with a sitcom very similar to their radio show. They once again were a hit. Like Lucy and Desi... Gracie and George formed a production company, and besides their own show, they also produced a number of other TV shows, most notably Mr. Ed. Gracie died in 1964 of heart disease, and the loss absolutely devastated George, who threw himself into his work, mostly in producing other people's television shows, but also developing for the first time an act for himself as a solo comedian. In 1974, he had an unexpected new big break— when his dear friend Jack Benny fell ill and had to step away from the film adaptation of the Neil Simon Broadway hit The Sunshine Boys. George stepped in to make his first film in 36 years, and he got an Oscar for his trouble. And in fact, at the age of 80, Burns became the oldest Oscar winner in history, a record that he would keep until 1989 when Jessica Tandy won hers for Driving Miss Daisy. In 1977, not long before his appearance on The Muppet Show, he starred in the film Oh God, playing the title role, opposite future Muppet collaborator John Denver, and scored another big hit, and in fact, ended up doing two sequels to that as well. He would continue to perform in concert, make movies and TV appearances throughout the 80s. 
In February 1995, he made his final television appearance when he accepted the first ever SAG Lifetime Achievement Award from the Screen Actors Guild. In March of 1996, at 100 years old, George was finally reunited with Gracie. He was interred beside her at Forest Lawn Cemetery under a marker that reads, Gracie Allen and George Burns together again. George Burns had just a a remarkable lengthy career, so uh, I just gave you the highlights. But I'm wondering if anyone here has uh, specific George Burns memories or favorite bits that they want to share. I just remember him being really ubiquitous on TV in the late 80s and early 90s. And I just remember in my child brain, when I tried to imagine the oldest man possible, (laughs) the first thing I always thought of was George Burns. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting. He's already, right, if he died at 100, like he's already 80 in this appearance. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, and he's making jokes about it. Well, although um, on the radio show, they make jokes about how much older he is than Gracie, which he really wasn't. He was just a couple of years older, but like uh, in, in the thirties, they'll do jokes about like, Oh, this beautiful woman is married to this old man, George, you're so old. And you know, he's 40. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was baked into it from the start. Almost. I love George Burns. He's one of my all time favorite comedians. This episode was my introduction to both him and The Muppet Show. So um, I've been a fan since I first saw this in 1993. I own a bunch of his books. I've read some of them many times. They all just read like him sitting around telling stories off the top of his head. I think he's the greatest straight man in the history of comedy. I, I have never smoked, but if I did, it would just be so I could be more like George Burns, you know? I think he and Gracie have the most delightful relationship. Like that's like marriage goals for me. Absolutely. Real life, George and Gracie, not, not the act George and Gracie. I I think he's the best. Uh, Well, you've already, you've already given this away, Anthony, but uh, we usually ask our guests to go first. Um, The episode specifically, do you think it is the best? It's not my favorite episode of the Muppet show. It, It is. Like I said, it's the first one I remember seeing. There's uh, a couple of bits in this that when I think of the Muppet show are, are among the first things I think of just because they imprinted on me so strongly as a little kid watching it. Now, I don't think the fleet scribbler stuff is that great. Frankly, I I love all the guest star stuff. I love everything George gets to do. I love most of the songs. Uh, I'm sure there's one you and I will disagree on, Adam, but, (laughs) (laughs) but um, uh, no, I I think it's a, a good, you know, solid B plus a minus Muppet show that I enjoy, but it's not like if somebody says, what's your favorite episode? This one isn't one that I think of, but I have, I bet I've seen it 15 times or something, you know? So obviously I enjoy it. David, you kind of tipped your hand uh, off mic. Also, how about you? I love this episode. I can't believe I love it more than Anthony does. Now, granted, we have a lot more Muppet show ahead of us, but I think this is my favorite episode of all of the ones we've seen so far. No, I think that's great. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It just, it just hits all of the marks for me. Even Fleet Scribbler is a little annoying, but as a more or less one-off character, he's fine. I know we have a couple more appearances of his before he goes away for good, and I'm sure that I will not like those as much. But uh, I just really uh, love this from start to finish. It's also one that I definitely saw very early in my life and probably many, many times since. There are songs in this that I have since come to know in many, many different versions. But like when we got to the You Made Me Love You bit, I just had this like weird 
intense deja vu reaction of remembering <laughs> like, oh, this is how I know this song. So yeah, I just, uh, I love this. If I wanted to make someone a Muppet Show fan, this is one of the episodes I would probably show them. Awesome. Michal? I think I'm uh, with Anthony on the solid B plus, A minus. I think this is a delightful episode of The Muppet Show. And for anybody who loves it when Muppets just bust out with a song and dance number, which uh, is everybody who isn't dead inside, it's a very enjoyable time. Sorry, Adam. (laughs) Hey. Especially after, you know, it it felt for a while at the beginning of season two, like we were going through a bit of a slump. And then uh, with the Madeline Kahn episode followed by this, it's a great one-two punch of uh, delightful Muppetude. And yeah, all the musical numbers in this episode are wonderful. There are many of them are almost as old as George Burns, and <laughs> that works just fine. And then in between, there's all the Fleet Scribbler stuff, and some of the sketches are a little draggy. But this episode has such a strong start and finish that you kind of forget the stuff in between. Christy? Yeah, solid B plus is where I would land on this. I have really warm feelings towards this episode. There's a really easy sweetness to it that I think can be chalked up to George Burns because he has such a charm and an ease to him that you just kind of lock into his vibe immediately and uh, it's infectious. Uh, I mean, there's some real nonsense in this episode and we'll get to it. Like, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But uh, even when it veers into nonsense territory, I, I couldn't bother to be mad. It's just nice. Yeah, it's like a C, C minus for me. <laughs> but oh but I, I I like, it's one of those episodes that doesn't really cohere, especially after we've had a couple of really great ones. But like all the pieces are solid. Um, and and there are a couple that really did imprint on me as a child that, that we'll get to uh, for better or for worse. Um, it's, I think, my favorite veterinarian's hospital so far. Um, I don't. I don't love a lot of what George Burns is doing th- through no fault of his. He is doing it extremely well. It's just not for me. What I love about him is the way that he works with the Muppets. We've talked about this before with with guest stars who are really good at this. Like There is never any doubt that George Burns sees these puppets as 100% real and takes them completely seriously. And it's so charming. His sort of vaudeville shtick does not really work for me in this, but like he's great at it. So yeah, I, I'm sorry to be the downer, but like I did not enjoy it. I just didn't love it. But I loved a lot of pieces in it. So let's get into it. George Burns! George Burns, 20 seconds to curtain, Mr. Burns! I'm ready. But, uh, but what is that? It's my new act, Gonzo Fiddles While George Burns! So that's our opening joke. And that's a fine direction for this episode to take. Uh, I am pleased to report for everybody who's been listening to us every week, reporting on the yay evolution that nothing new has happened. We now have some progress uh, after a fashion. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. George Burns. (laughs) (laughs) George Burns flying right over his head, it sounds like. (laughs) So I could have saved us all some time if I had remembered. (laughs) That there's a clip that I don't remember, I don't know if I've ever actually played it on the show, but I definitely use it on our sound check almost every week. That I I when this played, I went, oh yeah. <laughs> that I got from like a YouTube compilation of every single guest star intro in order. And it took so long to get here that when we got here, I was like looking for a yay to put in our soundboard. And we finally got here and I was like, okay, I'm so done. <laughs> that I clipped it and I stopped. And I I forgot where it came from. But hey. This is where it came from. We've arrived. We've arrived. The closed captioning also uh, says this is whoops. Can we hear it again and see if it sounds like whoops? Yes, it definitely does not. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. George Burns. Ah! 
<laughs> Kermit's just so excited. I just wanted to hear it again. It's in all caps in the close captioning as W-H-O-O-P-S exclamation point. And that was delightful <laughs> to me. I wonder if we might backtrack for a moment. I would not have thought that we might need to explain the opening joke, but then I listened to two other Muppet Show podcasts about the George Burns episode because I was short on time for preparing this week, and they all seemed confused or in need of research around this in order for one person to explain it to the other person. So I I wonder if we need to talk a little bit about the Emperor Nero. (laughs) When Gonzo makes the joke that Gonzo fiddles while George burns, that is a play on a famous expression that comes from Roman history where there was a wicked Roman emperor, Nero, who is a hedonist who let his empire crumble around him and the the famous images of him just playing his violin to amuse himself while Rome burned down around him. And so Nero fiddles while Rome burns is the original Gonzo fiddles while George Burns is the joke. I, I don't know if I just feel very old or very cultured for knowing that and realizing that uh, that is something that might need explanation. No shade to the people who needed the explanation. I mean, it sounded like a little shade. Uh, a little shade. <laughs> so I, I know that now, but I think as a kid, I still was entertained. Sure. As a kid, I wouldn't expect a, 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 a six-year-old watching this to get it. Well, I think it helps that they keep saying it. Even if you don't actually get it, it has the rhythm of a joke because they say it over and over in the episode. So it's like, yeah, Gonzo fiddles while George burns. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I feel like the expression was common enough, even if you didn't understand like its full meaning. I mean, who knows if I understood it when I was three, but you know, I feel like I, I would have heard Nero fiddles while Rome burns like enough just as a thing people said, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm adding current knowledge to a past memory but right I, like i took four years of latin in high school so i have no sense anymore of what's uh, common knowledge when it comes to rome <laughs> so on that note here's statler and waldorf's opening joke isn't his opening pretentious well <laughs> <laughs> someone's opening is <laughs> gonzo's trumpet uh does something which according to the closed captions is explosive honk <laughs> i mean who among us still no pope I'm up at Joe backstage. So backstage, here's some of the less fun stuff in this episode, but we'll uh, get it out of the way first. So Fleet Scribbler is this uh, little jerk with a little beaky nose and no chin and matted green hair. And he will stop at nothing, nothing to get a good headline. Because in this universe, the fans of The Muppet Show are clamoring for just juicy tabloid gossip about their favorite Muppet Show stars. What a headline. Muppets banned press reported thrown out by fraud. Oh, wait. Uh, on the other hand, can I offer you a cup of coffee? What a headline. Frog bribes reporter Muppets desperate for publicity. Uh, this isn't going to be easy. Say, is it true you're dropping a lot of stuff from the show this year? Uh, no, no, not particularly. Uh-huh. Muppets relying on same old tired junk. Oh, wait, wait, wait. On the other hand, we have a lot of brand new innovative stuff. Mm, Muppets changing format. Desperate to sustain show. I never knew the press could be so depressing. No, welcome to 2021. (laughs) My question about Fleet Scribbler is, did the Muppet Show really get bad press? Like, this feels like Jerry Jewell or somebody has an axe to grind with, like, how the show was being covered. No, I think that they got very good press, particularly in England. And so this was like their loving 
uh, sort of loving jab at the British tabloid press. I suppose so. Yeah, that makes sense. I love Jerry Nelson's performance. I think it's such a, like his weaselly little voice is so fun, I think. It's very close to his Louis Kazagra voice that'll come up. That's later. true. Yeah. I mean, it's, and those are, yeah. they're, all, they're all in that general Robin Gobo Fraggle, you know, fartily, like this high pitched voice he does a lot, but he's so good at giving them different inflections to, to make it feel distinct. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. It is somewhere between Louis Kazagra and Gobo Fraggle, but it's definitely distinct from both of them. Mm-hmm. In uh, Of Muppets and Men, Jerry Jewell says that uh, at the beginning of the second season, they had a big reception for the English press. And I guess they, they introduced the character at that reception. So they were sort of making fun of the English press at the reception for the English press. And the writers took to him. And then the Muppet folks hated him. <laughs> but we realized that he was simply abrasive and awful. We just wanted to get rid of him right away, but there'd been all this publicity, so we tried to stay with him for several weeks until we could drop him without anyone noticing. End quote. The only thing I find weird about that quote is that like nothing was airing live or even in order. So like who was there to notice what they were doing and when they were dropping him? But apart from that, that that all sort of tracks actually. I think this is it. I think it's just this one and Rich Little for for season two. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It does maybe explain the quick turnaround of the production on this episode, though, that maybe if they had that reception for the press, like to launch the second season, not long before the second season actually started. And then they still had an episode or more to record. And this was the next one. Like maybe they, I don't know, maybe they like rushed it through production in order to be able to get this character on the air right away. I love that in universe, like the, the, total incongruity of anyone caring about the Muppets, like, because we've actually seen repeatedly that they are wildly unsuccessful, but supposedly they're also like tabloid front page news, which makes no sense, but I love it. And I also just love his little seventies mop top hair. So throughout the episode, fleet scribbler is hassling everybody, including miss piggy to get some sweet, sweet dirt on the Muppet show. You want to interview me? Well, uh, not exactly. What do you want? Dirt. You know, scandal, a hot skinny. What really goes on behind the scenes? Well, I couldn't do that. There is such a thing as loyalty to one's fellow performers. Mm, Too bad. I also wanted to do a picture spread of you, something for page three. Well... I just think it's extraordinarily urgent that we (laughs) make sure our American listeners know that a photo spread on page three is topless. Oh, no, I had no idea. (laughs) And that's what changes Piggy's mind. Yes, that is a feature of the sun, right? That uh, for many, many, many years, they've they've had the sun girls who uh, post topless on page three. Wow, wow, wow. That's wild. And now I'm thinking a little bit too much about what Piggy might look like topless, mm-hmm. and I need someone to change the subject quickly. Before teats. you Google it. How many Don't do it. Um, <laughs> no, not doing it, not doing no, it. No. So in this scene, Piggy comes out of her dressing room and is wearing her Pigs in Space costume, despite there not being a Pigs in Space sketch in this episode. Maybe it's just her pajamas. Maybe. It does look really comfortable, actually. Maybe, yeah. Maybe they're doing Pigs in Space while, say, George Burns is talking to Gonzo. You know? It's very possible. Or just while George Burns. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> it's also very possible that the sketches, you know, get swapped around as the production happens and there was supposed to be pigs in space. But, you know, I just, I love a good continuity error. So conveniently, after Fleet has been harassing everyone throughout this episode, he takes on the guest star, who is a show business veteran and knows exactly how to handle the press. Hey, I wanted to warn you about this reporter that's backstage. He writes a gossip column. That's all right, Carmen. As long as he doesn't write the obituary column, I'm not worried. <laughs> yeah, but, but he writes for the Daily Scandal, and he'll do anything for sensationalism. Look, I'll get right down to the point, uh, Burns. How much are they paying you on this show? Hey, now, now wait a second. Uh, let please. me, let me, let me handle this, Carmen. They're paying me $250,000. Oh, come on. Is that a lie? One of my best. I love that guy. Yeah. And then, yeah, he just promptly says, oh, that must be the end of the interview and leaves the dressing room. He does ask, he asks him some questions about, um, about his like shift from, you know, comedy to acting first. And he says that, uh, George Burton says that being a, a good actor is basically doing whatever the director tells you to and sitting in a chair believably, which I thought was very funny. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, $250,000 in 1977 would be uh, $1.14 million today. <laughs> Golly. Yeah, inflation's a bitch. No wonder no, they, wonder they have only have for $27 for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> I realized it was the 70s and everybody was probably smoking everywhere all the time, but I could not stop thinking about the cigar smell getting into the puppets. Every time George Burns was smoking a cigar on stage. Maybe I mean, the really puppets already smelled like weed. Who are we trying to kid? <laughs> I'm sure. I know. I just, <laughs> I, yeah, it just bothered me. <laughs> I know we're not going to hit every fleet scribbler moment, but we do get one clip where he's interviewing the Swedish chef and he's speaking mock Swedish with him. And this, I believe is the first time we've seen anyone other than the Swedish chef speak mock Swedish. Well, and that's that's part of the joke that they're that, that Kermit's like, oh well, that's okay because he won't get anything out of the Swedish chef, and then and then they're having a whole conversation. Pretty great. Yeah, we never learn the upshot of uh, all that Fleet Scribbler has learned. I wonder what he ends up publishing. It's true. I get the sense that once George Burns kind of put him in his place, he realized that he couldn't trust any of the material that he had, and so he just slinked back quietly into the night. Although. That doesn't actually make a whole lot of logical sense because he knows at least the dirt that he got from Scooter is real. So this is classic Scooter's being a jerk material. Man, I love this scene. <laughs> uh, Kermit telling Scooter to, you know, not talk to Fleet Scribbler and Scooter's like, no, nah, I'm going to give him the dirt. And then he does because that's what Scooter's like. He'll stab anyone in the back for any reason. And you know Scooter knows everything. Right. Piggy probably made up some stuff, but Scooter knows what's, what's what. Conniving little twink. That's our boy. This week's music is all over the map, literally and figuratively. So 
So uh, this is a song called Quanta Lagusta. It's a signature song of the performer Carmen Miranda, who was a performer in the, the 40s and 50s in, in movies. She uh, would perform with like a fruit hat. So like the, the, this performance on The Muppet Show is an homage to her as much as it feels weirdly appropriative and inappropriate it uh, has music by gabriel ruiz and lyrics by ray gilbert uh, carmen miranda originally recorded it with the andrews sisters in 1948 and sang it in a movie called a date with judy also in 1948 a and- delightful film might i add so i haven't seen the whole movie i've only watched the clip of this song on youtube and i highly recommend it because the clip again so uh, in this particular performance she's performing with xavier cugat and his orchestra and it begins with xavier cugat holding a puppy for no discernible reason and then he like hands it to somebody and then the song starts (laughs) and then like as she's performing the song uh, you know she's sort of doing this sort of like kind of sexy dance elizabeth taylor and uh some other people are sitting at a table and uh, robert stack yeah yeah robert stack that yeah okay but he's like but, a very young Robert Stack okay, is one of okay. the love interests. Okay, but he's I don't think he's at that table though because it's it's like her and another girl her age she's like 16 at the time and her mom and dad and the dad's getting really into it and all of the women at the table are like really really uncomfortable to the point that like one of them's about to cry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I highly recommend it. It's wild. <laughs> uh yeah, during 2020, uh, one of the many new hobbies I picked up was Carmen Miranda movies. I bought myself a Carmen Miranda box set and made my way through it and then (laughs) found additional Carmen Miranda movies that were not part of the box set and made my way through them. I haven't seen every single one of them yet, but I've seen, uh, I I saw, I don't know, eight, ten Carmen Miranda movies last year. (laughs) So here's the thing about Carmen Miranda. Although she was billed as Brazilian. She was actually an immigrant to Brazil from Portugal. And so there was a lot of, there were a lot of mixed feelings about Carmen Miranda as a personality among South Americans, especially as she became sort of the face of South America to the United States during the good neighbor policy. And especially because a lot of her shtick was Brazilian, but a lot of her shtick also was sort of like, Pan-American and combined, one might say appropriated, cultural traditions from different South American cultures and countries. So she was a complex and complicated figure herself. So in many ways, the idea that Piggy might be doing something appropriative in tribute to Carmen Miranda is like doubly appropriate slash inappropriate. <laughs> the pig, the on top of that, Xavier Cugat is Spanish. Yeah, but like, and then the styling... I don't even know what the styling is. It read as sort of Spanish, like Spanish Spain to me, but I don't know. The accents are wow. And there is not a disclaimer on this episode, except about the smoking, (laughs) which is wild to me. Like, it's not offensive, offensive. I mean, who am I to say what's offensive? But like, but the, I mean, just the accents alone, because we know that all these performers are extremely white. Right, but you know, as a reminder, uh, Spaniards are also extremely white. <laughs> well, yes, but that's not. But they're they're claiming but they say this south is. of the border, which yeah, is still confusing. So, and anyway, I mean, like the way that Frank Oz is rolling his R's is impressive, but it's still <laughs> yeah. There's there's a lot going on. here. There's a lot going on here. Um, this yeah. number I remember so clearly from childhood. I mean, to the point where like I cannot like see the word Quanto in Duolingo without the song <laughs> popping into my head. Um, <laughs> 
it's just it's just a thing. Um, but yikes! I mean, there's the yikes factor, and also this is a ton of fun. Oh, sure, right. That's Both things thing. can be true. Yeah. <laughs> there's that great little detail moment when there's uh, there are two pigs up on a balcony, sort of overlooking the scene. Those are played by Jim Henson and Dave Goals, and Dave gets. A, a trumpet solo or Dave's pig gets a trumpet solo and he like turns the pig around to like lean backwards over the balcony while playing the trumpet, which was an improv moment on Dave's part that just like totally cracked Jim up behind the scenes while they're doing this. Uh, and it just, there's just so much like, like that you can just tell that they're all having so much fun doing this number. I think it really uh, just has such energy to it. If you really and truly hate yourself, there's a clip of Alvin and the Chipmunk singing this in the <laughs> Chipmunk Adventure. Is one of them done up as Carmen Miranda? I, if I remember correctly, they all are. It's a nightmare. Good heavens! Wow. Sorry, I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> yeah, it's it's upsetting. <laughs> So in the Alvin and the Chipmunks version, they're just wearing large sombreros. They're not wearing fruit on their head. Oh, okay. And the most offensive thing about it is that it has like a terribly cheap synthesizer orchestration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, there it is, your basic Latin number. Well, actually, it's your basic pig Latin number. <laughs> <laughs> we get a couple of George Burns numbers. Actually, more than a couple of George Burns numbers in this episode, which is delightful. I guess I'll take the train back home. There's no more sights here left for me to see. I've wined and dined and gazed on bill affairs till mother's homemade pies look good to me. San Francisco is a grand old place. When I get back, I'll never, never own. Tell those cable cars to wait and open up that golden gate. I'm going to take the train back home to San Francisco. I'm going to take the train back home to Powell and Margaret. So this is Train Back Home. And I had to do some digging to uh, learn about the provenance of this song. It's uh, words by Jeff T. Brannan, music by Billy Taylor with the lesser known uh, two E's at the end spelling um, uh, from 1906. And uh, according to the cover of the sheet music, it was Billy Taylor's song success in the Will J. Block Amusement Company's gorgeous song play, Coming Through the Rye. This is very straightforward. It's just George and Ralph. I love this. I think this is great. To me, this is the good version of what they tried to do with Milton Berle and The Entertainer. Mm. I'm on record as liking that number more than than most of you, I think. But it's very like... I think it's a very low bar. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. But it's very Milton Berle being like, oh, I was, I was the vaudeville man. I'm going to say the words to The Entertainer that were written five years ago. Whereas... Here we have George Burns doesn't have to say that he's a vaudeville man. He just comes out and acts like his, his himself just actually does his act and it's delightful. And then sings an actual song from 1906. It's so charming to me. It's just, this is, this is exactly what I want George Burns and Ralph to be doing with their time. I love the, the bit at the beginning when Ralph starts playing and he does like a very elaborate fill and George says, Ralph, play like you're not getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> this song kills with people from San Francisco. Oh, sure. Because just loaded up with like hyper local references. And it reminds me a little bit of when we talked about the song Night Train and James Brown used to just shout out the names of like local DJs and local cities because people love to hear the names of things they recognize. And like, this is that 
for San Francisco and only San Francisco. Why George Burns is doing a San Francisco song on the Muppet Show filmed in London, I don't know. So this left me with a question that I haven't been able to find an answer for. This musically reminds me of a song called Why Do the Wrong People Travel from the musical Sail Away by Noel Coward. I mean, I I, I would assume that Noel Coward's song is sort of a, a reference to this or alluding to this in some way. But it, it made me wonder if there is like a name for the song convention of the da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> because I know I've heard that places besides this song and that song. When the right people stay back home and mind their business. When the right people stay back home with Cinerama. When the right people stay back home. I'm merely asking why the right people stay back home. Yeah, I wouldn't even know how to look that up. Right. Like, it, it just feels like a vaudeville trope, I guess. Yeah, yeah like, it, it's it's a thing. But it, it's funny when, when there's a thing like that, that, like, it doesn't have a name and you can't quite pinpoint it, but you know it's a thing. Hmm. I don't know if any of our listeners will be able to identify that fill for us, but I'm sure it does have a name. And I bet we can find someone who can give us the name and we will report back. Lovely. I just found this so weird. <laughs> here, here I am to shit on it at the end of the conversation. Um, when when it was George and Rolf together at the beginning, it was so charming. Though, has Rolf's piano gotten even smaller? Sure looked like it. Okay, glad it wasn't me having a stroke. But then, like, the song itself, when he just starts listing shit, and then, like, you see the joke coming a mile away that he's he now has, like, spent so much time listing shit that he missed the train. Uh, okay... Okay, George. <laughs> what do you? <laughs> I don't I mean, know. There are two ways to do this song. You could do it, you know, so sentimentally, thinking about all these places you can't wait to visit, that then it hits harder, I guess, when you realize you've missed your train. Or you could do it as dry as George Burns is doing it, and then he just or you kind could, of notes or casually. Or you could not do it. Or you could not do it. But he just kind of casually notes that he's missed his train. and he's I thought the Burns. song was completely charming until it turned into a joke list song, I guess is what I'm saying. Which is not George Burns' fault at all. <laughs> it is the song's fault. George Burns is doing his job as directed, as discussed in the Fleet Scribbler sketch. <laughs> well, that George Burns is a great singer. Yeah, well, so am I, Statler. What? Sure. You want to hear me sing? Only if you sing tenor. Tenor? Ten or eleven miles away. <laughs> okay, first of all, Statler and Waldorf are on fire this week. <laughs> Second of all, my mother had a version of this joke that was uh, only if you sing solo. Solo? Solo, I can't hear you. Did she do it with a tiki room accent? Yeah, I was no. going to say, that's straight no. from the tiki room. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> Never made that connection. Yeah, I suspect that that did not originate in the Tiki Room either. Right, yeah. (laughs) Or or with my mother, to be clear. Probably an older joke than that. But yeah, yeah, this joke is my favorite line of the week. 10 or 11 miles away. That's funny. We move from San Francisco east to Chattanooga. Pardon me, boy. 
Is this the Chattanooga choo-choo? Choo-choo, track 29. Hey, you can give me a shot. And you are poor. Who, who, to board the Chattanooga choo choo. Woo, woo. I've got a fair. Just a trifle to spare. I love how long they let it be a straightforward version of the song before before they do the joke. It's true. I, I have a note that says, as I have said in recent weeks, justice for Wayne and Wanda. But, but this is the difference of the, the season two bits is that they they do go on much longer than a Wayne and Wanda bit would have. And it's fun to see Wayne and Wanda type jokes befalling other characters. Yeah. yeah. There's a wider variety of songs and they are arguably better songs. And so I, I like that we get to hear more of them. This one made me laugh just because as a an old timey weirdo, I, I literally saw it coming because they're on <laughs> the backdrop. So it's it's a group of four whatnots on uh, what you think is a train platform. But like then you start looking at it and it's like they're not really on a platform. That looks really strange. But but there's a number twenty nine. So it's like if you know the song, it's track twenty nine. So I'm just like, oh no, it's it's a Chattanooga Choo Choo joke. It's a Chattanooga Choo Choo joke. And then the song started. And well, they're also really badly chroma keyed. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, what they? Why did they? Like they obviously had to make a backdrop. So like, why are they not just in front of the? Oh, I see where yeah. it's going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Christy hasn't actually told us about the song. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> we got sidetracked. Hey. So yeah, so uh, this is Chattanooga Choo Choo uh, from 1941, uh, written by Matt Gordon and Harry Warren. And it was a huge hit during the big band era. It was a signature song for Glenn Miller and his orchestra. And it was featured in the 1941 movie Sun Valley Serenade. And it was the first song to ever receive a gold record in 1942. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> It sold 1.2 million copies. And like, this was a song that I definitely knew as a kid. And I don't think it was from this. Like it must have, it must have just been in movies and things. I mean, it certainly was everywhere. And it was also the kind of song that if, if you had parents who were listening to older music, right, which I did, it would just, it was one that it was like in constant rotation on those kinds of radio shows. This is also um, like Quanta Lagusta, a song that the Andrews sisters had a popular version of. And it's referenced in a movie featuring a uh, recent guest star, Madeline Kahn, uh, in Young Frankenstein, Gene Wilder and a shoeshine boy quote, just quote, quote the song. And yes, that's, the that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely, if not the place I know it from, a place I know it from. Right. This week, the UK spot almost outdoes itself in its Britishness. <laughs> oh boy. Remember a few weeks ago when I accused you of making up song titles? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Ma'am says, I have some news to tell. Your rich Uncle Tom of Camberwell popped off. Reason cause he worked too well. Leaving you his little donkey gray. Watch your all the neighbors cry. Who you gonna meet? We'll have you walk the street. We'll laugh. Ha! Yeah, as it turned out, I didn't make up that song title. It is a very real song. <laughs> Here it is. What a joy. Watcher, knock, <laughs> watcher knocked him in the old Kent Road. Here it is. Oh, While he's doing it. 
Yeah. So uh, as a refresher, this was written by Charles Ingle and Albert Chevalier in 1891. Shout out to the public domain. (laughs) And uh, these are the guys, uh, the brothers behind My Old Dutch, which I didn't think could get out Britishized. (laughs) Here we are. I enjoy the music hall bits as much as anyone, but this one is so indecipherably cockney that for a second I thought I'd lost the capacity to process language. (laughs) Okay, here's why I hate this. I'm not going to last this time. Here's why I hate this. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually not because I hate the song and music hall. Like, it's not for for me, but that's okay. It's because it's so cockney and Fozzie isn't. And I I respect the choice to not have Fozzie slash Frank Oz do the accent, but that makes it not work. Uh, see, I think yeah, I, I agree. Ozzy's a professional. He's he's playing to what the crowds want, local crowds. He's trying to please the the home audience, and I think he's doing an admirable job. Yeah, I think Fozzy is selling the heck out of this. It is no fault of his, but I just think it it hurts the song. See, I, so you'd I, rather I, hear Burlington Birdie sing it? I mean, I would actually, yeah, because it would it would scan right, it would God. sound right. But Burlington Birdie has such an unpleasant singing voice, like I. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. That that's a really rough choice to have to make there. I just thought this was so charming. Like, who cares if you understand it? I don't mean literally understand it. I mean you The I mean, melody slaps. Yeah, I will I, give I, it I, that. I, yeah, like yeah, that's and everybody thing is, sings like, along. I love that sing along. Fun. Yeah, it's all fun. Like I don't need to understand the words to Inagata Davida. I don't need to understand the words to this. <laughs> right. And like, do I know what smells like Teen Spirit is about? No, but I like it. Same here. Well, and I think <laughs> I didn't mean literally understand. This was the Nirvana of 1891. And I think <laughs> I think the way that Fozzie is just jumping around, like you know, skipping across the stage, swinging his arms around, like he's so into it. I think all that is great. I think that's why Fozzie's singing this, so Frank Oz can showboat with the puppetry. You know, like. Oh, yeah, yeah, the dancing is fantastic. I'm so into it. And I love that Fozzie shows up in the right outfit, so we immediately know where this song is supposed to be situated, right? Like, it doesn't matter if he doesn't sound Cockney, because he looks Cockney. Uh, I had to Google, to because I could not remember the term, so I put into the computer, what do you call Cockney people with buttons? <laughs> uh, to- <laughs> Just don't call them late for whatever you call Cockney dinner? Yeah, yeah no, no, I don't do rhyming slang. <laughs> Just don't call but him like anyway, and mash. Fozzie is dressed like a pearly king, which if you don't know what that is, that's like the folks who sing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious ah. and Mary Poppins. Ah. Uh, so, you know, I just thought this was like a great way to, to signal where we are, what we're doing. I like having main cast members do this in the same way that we liked it. And when I say we, I really mean you all, because I didn't so much. But in theory, <laughs> that we liked it when when Miss Piggy did her music hall number with the with the girl in the balcony. Boy in the gallery. That Boy was the, the one balcony. she did, right? Boy, Boy in, in the, the balcony. Yeah. Someone was in a balcony. Whatever. She waved a fucking <laughs> handkerchief and people cried. <laughs> she stood there with her stubby little legs as the camera zoomed out. Was this also the same backdrop as Burlington Birdie? Yeah, that's the other way that we know where we are and when right. we are. Even if it wasn't exactly the same, it was like a very immediate. And Fozzie's going to wear this costume again for another musical number. Spoiler. Oh, goody. But, <laughs> but I, I was going to say, one of my proudest possessions is an EP called The Muppet Show Music Hall, which just has four <laughs> songs. 
They're all music hall songs. This is one of them. Boy in the Gallery is one of them. Uh, and I think the other two you, you haven't gotten to yet. So that's like, I would just put that on like when I was in college. So this is just a song I listened to for fun in my youth. I love that. I, I've only learned during the making of Muppeturgy that this, that, that EP exists and I really want to own it. I, I'm more of a fan of music hall than uh, some of my uh, cohort here. <laughs> and I love a good sing along. And also, yeah, if we're going to see more of this stuff, I'm happy for it to be Fozzie just parading around the stage, giving himself all this weird choreography with perfect timing. I'm I'm into it. I don't dislike Music Hall. I'm a, a huge fan of the musical version of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. That's not Music Hall. That's fake that's Music just, Hall. That's just that's, that's just like Rupert saying, Holmes, isn't it? Like he's just Rupert Holmes in around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the Pina Colada song. <laughs> hey, as, as, as Christy and I have discussed, we both love Remember When. So all respect to Rupert Holmes, but. He's, he's not from 1906. Really? Once again, the dead Muppets are dead center in the audience shots. I, I just don't understand. <laughs> While everyone else is singing along. Man, Baskerville is getting into it. <laughs> Baskerville has a couple of opportunities for sing along in this episode and like gives it 150%. <laughs> I mean, those ears. It's great. Baskerville is a character who seems meant for music hall numbers. It's too bad that they don't let him take center stage for something like this. Although I, then maybe we get more of the fucking sausage song. So I don't know. yeah, I was going to say they let him audition and look what happened. And now for something completely different, we get an at the dance fake out that leads into a number. Come in, come in, won't you dance with me? Come in. I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance. Madam with you. My heart won't let my feet do things they should do. You know what? What? You're lovely. And so what? I'm lovely. But oh, what you do to me. Yeah, so this is I Won't Dance, music by Jerome Kern, a Muppet Show staple. Lyrics by Dorothy Fields. Fuck yeah, Dorothy Fields. Fuck yeah. Jimmy McHugh is also credited for some reason, but they're, they're Dorothy Fields' lyrics. And it's actually the version of this song that's famous is actually the second version of the song. It was originally written for a West End flop called Three Sisters, and it had lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II and Otto Harbach. And then it got a rewrite for the 1935 film version of Roberta. This is the second song from Roberta that we've had on the Muppet Show. You might remember from a few episodes ago, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. That's also from Roberta. And it seems like Jim Henson or Jerry Jewell or someone must have gone to a Fred and Ginger film festival over the summer between season one and season two. Because this is like the, I don't know third, fourth, fifth Fred and Ginger song we've had this season. There's just, there's been a lot of them. I'm not complaining. This is amazing. No, it's great. Yeah, this is, it's great. This is my favorite Kermit piggy duet of all time. It's very charming. I love this so much. I have nothing bad to say about this. And I, the way that they arranged it and incorporated the at the dance theme into it is yeah. hilarious. Uh, it's so good. And I love it. Yeah. And Kermit's in his little tux. Piggy's doing all of this like, shimmying and grabbing Kermit and it's oh it's so much fun. Well and I love the I love Frank Oz's just angry delivery at the end of and if I hold you in my arms <laughs> <laughs> that guy is so good at his job. It was weird to me that Kermit's back in his purple tux after he got the upgrade last week with his much nicer black tux for happy feet. He matches Piggy's gown? 
Also, it's adorable. Sure. I don't know. I just the, the purple tuxes feel very season one to me, so I was ready for them to go away. This is the only one of this week's songs that I could definitively find a noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra version of. As much as I would love to hear his uh, Watcher knocked him in the old Kent <laughs> So finally, we get a couple of George Burns sing-alongs. It could be king, could be almost any old thing. It all depends on you. I'll find another song. You, oh, I got it. You made me love you. I didn't want to do it. 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 You made me want you. Didn't want to do it. You made me want you, and all the time you knew it. 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 Oh, you know, Frank Sinatra also did it. All depends on you. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so, so so two of them. But he definitely didn't do uh, Quanta Lagusta. I, I'm sad to report. Sadly, no. Oh, man. Sadly. <laughs> um, something he might actually do, so, you know. Yeah. I can see it. It's within the vague realms of possibility. So, yeah, two songs here. It All Depends on You from 1926. Music by Ray Henderson. Lyrics by Buddy G. De Silva and Lou Brown. It was written for a musical called Big Boy, which I hope was about hamburgers. Uh, (laughs) I didn't look it up. And it was featured in a 1928 movie called The Singing Fool with Al Jolson, uh, who was also the originator of You Made Me Love You, I Didn't Want to Do It, uh, from 1913, which was written by James V. Monaco and Joseph McCarthy. Not that Joseph McCarthy. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Gonna ask. That would be interesting. There was actually a, a rewrite uh, that happened to, or more of an addition that happened to You Made Me Love You uh, in 1937. Roger Edens wrote additional lyrics for Judy Garland to sing uh, that were all about her being a swoony fan of Clark Gable. <laughs> and she ended up recording that version, and it was the B-side of the single of Over the Rainbow. And then many years later, Cookie Monster further rewrote that to make it a swoony love song about cookies. True. <laughs> It happened. The first thing I think of when I hear this song is the commercial from 10 years ago for the hover round. Am I the only one who remembers this commercial? I don't know. <laughs> the hover round, the like motor scooter. It, 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 it features this like cavalcade of uh, older folks singing the song with various levels of tune and ability. <laughs> huh. But getting really into it. I'll, we'll, we'll have a link. Yeah. Find that. <laughs> I found this quite charming. Yeah, it's great. Lest you think I hate everything that George Prince did. <laughs> I thought this was very cute. So uh, how, how does everyone feel about Gonzo in this? I love him. I think that stuff is so fun. Gonzo just repeating the line, I didn't want to do it at inopportune times. I think that's hilarious. The funny thing to me is that he's holding like a lyric sheet and no one else is. And never yet in the Muppet Show have we ever <laughs> seen anyone holding a lyric sheet. <laughs> <laughs> and so somehow, even though usually they sing all of their songs totally memorized, the one time that he actually has music in front of him, he still manages to fuck it up. That's great. It's very cute. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. So we have a little bit of show business to get through before we can end this episode. We've got a veterinarian's hospital. Uh, Piggy once again starts out. Uh, is she huffing oxygen? Is that what that is? I was assuming laughing gas based on what happens in the rest of the skit. <laughs> that makes sense. All right. So their patient today is a telephone. 
and the jokes are all lines you might expect, but whether they strike a chord depends on you, the receiver. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I get it. This clip is a little long because, like Picky, I, I couldn't stop. <laughs> Dr. Bob, do you know anything about repairing telephones? No, but I can look it up in the book. The medical book? No, the telephone book. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Dr. Bob? It must be jaundice. How do you know? Well, look at all these yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bob, mm. Dr. Bob, do you think the telephone needs an anesthetic? Well, if so, make it a local. Why? Because long distance costs too much. Nurse Piggy, you have the next line. Yes, I can't see it. How come? The line's busy. <laughs> Kids, ask your parents to explain every single one of those jokes. <laughs> yeah, and what the rotary phone is that's sitting on the operating table. Uh, that that jaundiced yellow pages joke. So good. Oh, we've also got George Burns and Gonzo trading quips in the dressing room. Uh, nothing especially comes of it, but it's a, just a fun little bit of banter. Well, how did you get a name like Gonzo? Oh, my mother gave it to me. Your mother? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she died two years before I was born. Well, if she died two years before you were born, how could she give you that name? Well, she, she left, left a, a note, note to, to your my father. father. Yeah, I thought so. Coming from you, that sounds believable. It's just such great timing. They're so good together. And it's, you sort of expect this to go to Fozzie. And I love that it didn't just like, just cause it's different. And like, they're just, Dave Goals is so great with George Burns. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and you know, George Burns makes the comment that this feels like, you know, the act he used to do with his partner. And it really does. It does sort of capture the certainly the rhythms if not exactly the content of what he's doing well, and he george has that sm- that little smile on his face through this whole thing which is exactly the way he used to look at gracie like what's wild is that he actually looks at gonzo the same way <laughs> do you think they went home together after they were done taping? Oh, i was waiting for you to ask and no no i don't <laughs> I, I don't this bit specifically was so formative to my sense of humor like this was the thing that made me know that I loved the Muppet show when I saw it. And when I was in eighth grade, we had to write a, create a character and write a biography of them. And I stole the, my mother died two years before I was born. She wrote a note joke to put that in a school assignment. That's beautiful. Did you get in trouble for plagiarism? Uh, I did not because my middle school Language arts teacher was also our FIAD teacher and heck of a nice guy. Not a big Muppet Show fan. Uncultured jackass. <laughs> well, I fucking hated this sketch. No, I'm totally kidding. I think <laughs> completely charming. Good Lord. Well, we should talk about the, the dressing room walls because we talked about it before we got on mic a little bit. So we've been noticing over the weeks that there are photos on the dressing room walls. And this week, I at least noticed that they are definitely changing them up from episode to episode, which I think we've suspected in the past, but now I've become attuned to it. And it was interesting that this time there were some photos that included former guest stars, which I had not noticed before. There was definitely a picture of Kay Ballard dancing with Thog. And then there were some others that, Definitely looked like they were human women, but would not. 
identifiable even in HD. Unidentified flying human women. <laughs> exactly. I love this little pizzeria that's the that the guest star's dressing room is turning into. So finally, we're going to take a quick delve into Muppet history with this coffee break machine sketch. So the Muppets have done versions of this sketch before, first as an IBM film and later on the Ed Sullivan Show. And they will also do it again in the 1980s in a Muppet meeting film. So every time this happens, there is this complex machine with all these parts, including a speaking part that's giving a descriptive readout of all the different parts and all the different functions, while a monster um, is eating each of those parts as they're being described. Um, in the earlier iterations, this was a proto-cookie monster that included teeth. Uh, here, it's Lunch Encounter Monster, whom we met in the Nancy Walker episode. And eventually, the machine announces its intention to self-destruct after the monster has succeeded in eating the entire thing, and this has predictable consequences. It, it It's fun. It feels a little long in this iteration, but it's very Muppety. Yeah, I, I love it for that reason. I love it just because it's one of those old variety show sketches. Like there's there's just something so pure about any Muppet show sketch that's clearly something they, you know, pulled out of the trunk. I don't know. It makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah. And the joke is that somebody's going to get eaten or explode, or in this case, both. Right. I also love that this puppet looks like it's so complex and it's actually just a foam cylinder with a slit cut in it and then a lot of cardboard <laughs> right because everything else around it. Off of it yeah i was wondering how many they built like how many takes do you think they did oh yeah or can they just put it back together right because it's all like modular yeah and it seemed like they really had to destroy it to get the take i love how like i mean it's such a easy thing like there's a whole like twitter account called faces in things <laughs> but like just the you know the illusion of the <laughs> face um and then, but then, even like when it's nothing left but the mouth, because like you've seen the face, even when all the other parts go away, like you, you still sort of, at least I still saw it as this living thing that had a face, even though yeah, for sure, only the mouth was left. You know, also just like there, it has these little these shiny dials, these like chrome plastic dials were like such a seventies sense memory of like every electronic device from that era was a thing. Bravo! Bravo! Why are you yelling bravo? Did you like it that much? No, friend of mine, Joe Bravo, he's sitting in the third row. <laughs> bravo! Bravo! Up here! Well, now that we've reached the end, does anyone have final thoughts about this episode? I really did like it, on the whole. <laughs> <laughs> he really does like the Muppets, everybody. It, it, the, your comments suggest that you liked it more than a than a C plus or whatever you gave it at the start. So it's just one of those like some of its parts, forest for the trees situations, and and sure. we're coming off a couple of of really great ones. So you know, grading on a curve. I mean, also whenever we're watching these, we're always comparing like the Muppet Show episode in front of us with sort of a hazy, idealized memory of all the Muppet Show. So. It's always interesting to me, like, there are many weeks where I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, it's been three weeks in a row where I've thought that this has not been the best episode, and maybe I don't love The Muppet Show the way I think I do. Uh, and then I get an episode like this where I'm like, oh, no, 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 like, when they hit, they really yeah, hit, right. and I love it. And, and it's interesting that for each of us, the episode that might provoke that reaction is a different one, but I think we've all had some version What I'm really nervous for are the ones that I, I think I remember very well, but actually have not seen in a really long time. 
to to mm-hmm. like to find out if I'm right. <laughs> I'm going to be so upset if I don't love the Loretta Swit episode. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Brooke Shields for me. <laughs> Let's find out. All right. So before we say goodbye, Anthony, would you like to plug anything? Yeah, I, I kind of plugged it all up front. But I do hope people will go check out our current mini season of Moving Right Along, where we are, once again, watching Muppet Family Christmas two minutes at a time throughout the month of December, December 1st through 24th. So if you want to hear us talk about, in in my humble opinion, the best thing the Muppets ever made, Muppet Family Christmas, come check it out. And also, David mentioned it up front, so I'll remind you again to go read The Oral History of Mo Frackle, an article I wrote uh, featuring interviews with puppeteers, puppet builders, directors, and Family Feud host Louis Anderson talking <laughs> about a specific Muppet monster. And we'll include a link directly to that in the show notes, but you should spend some time on toughpigs.com. It's a great website. Lots of fun stuff to find there in the archives. Ah, thank you. How do they do it? How do we watch it? <laughs> why do we watch it? Why do you watch it? And why do you listen to us? We can't do the beautiful look directly into the camera that Statler does when he says that line. Just know that I'm looking directly into my microphone. Thank you. Regardless, thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We'll be back next week to discuss the Dom DeLuise episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Power. Our show logo was created by Tom Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Lowe. Big Boy featured Al Jolson as Gus, a downtrodden African-American stable boy. Nope. Oh, For listeners who may not know, Al Jolson was not black. That's Who oh. ends up as a jockey winning the Kentucky Derby. Oh, boy. The all-but-one-man show, which introduced the standard It All Depends on You, was turned into a film in 1930.